Welcome to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwinniger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a lovely five-star review, and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight and analysis and practical application that you can take back to the office to help protect your organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. You know, modern day prosthetics for pirates have come a long way from peg legs and hooks to USB-A, USB-C, micro USB, USB mini, or lightning if you're one of the oddballs. But it's so annoying. You still have to get a bunch of adapters to actually make them fit. All right. So the first article we're talking about today is ransomware serve severs a thousand ships from onshore servers comes to us from the register that's like a tongue twister almost severs ships onshore servers yeah say it 10 times fast well i in case you couldn't tell i barely got it out once and that was poorly so a ransomware attack forced a company called dnv who has a ship what they call ship manager software flying and this left a thousand ships without a connection to their on their onshore servers and the DN, the company DNV is a worldwide, according to their website, this is how they classify themselves, the world's leading classification society and a recognized advisor for, mar, for the maritime industry. We enhance safety, quality, energy efficiency, and environmental performance of the global shipping industry. We have 12,000 of the ships of the world's ships and mobile offshore units in our fleet. We have unmatched technical experience in all ship and mobile offshore unit segments. It's fancy. There's lots of $10 words in there. Yeah, well, with 12,000 ships, they can afford it. Well, that's 12,000 customers. Is it 12? Actually, no, it's 12,000 ships, so it's unknown how many customers. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the ship management software is like fleet management software. I think we talked about that. I'm not sure how many episodes ago in reference to vehicle fleets. But this mm. is actually, you know, ship fleets. So it's probably a little more expensive than buying a $15 tracker off of Alibaba. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. You figure a ship is probably a little bit more complex than a car. But can you remotely turn it off? Well, probably, actually. Yeah, and then the ship's just going to sit there in the water all by <laughs> itself. Maybe that's what, that, that's what happened to the Mary Celeste. So the, so the ship manager software is designed to manage entire fleets and it includes modules for maintenance, crew, hull integrity, and other aspects of overseeing the fleet of shipping vessels. Uh, now, according to the, their, their press release on this was that the, the, the vessels are not in any danger and can still operate normally. And it says a thousand ships and 70 customers were affected by this attack. So my question then is, could the attackers have affected the ships if they chose not to ransomware it? Because I, I, I looked this up and right now, apparently ship manager cannot directly control the ship. But I did find an article in Maritime Executive from 2021 where they were testing an autonomous and remote controlled tug in a harbor. I think it was in Sydney. But I'm just, I'm just, I just can't wait till that's the next method of getting your ransom. Like, hey, or we're going to drive your ship onto the next reef or we're going to open up, you know, the... Uh, the fuel tanks into the ocean or some other some other method of mayhem. I wonder if they have, well, I'm not sure, you know, submarines have ballast. I wonder if there's a similar thing on regular ships because they could say, 
Well, we will send your entire cargo to the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. That, yeah. And if you recall, several months ago, there was that the ship that was on fire with the Teslas that was hundreds of millions of dollars was lost in, in that fire on that boat. And I don't think that even accounted for the entire cargo of the ship. So imagine yeah. how much money could be lost if one of those entire tankers goes down. Yeah. Yeah. These are these are big ships that are carrying yeah, hundreds of hundreds of crate containers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sure, you've seen pictures of these container ships. It is <laughs> ridiculous what they look like. They yeah. almost look like if you see the any of the Star Wars animation in recent years, both let's see, Rebels and and the uh, the latest one, the Bad Batch. They show you know what they envision these these shipping things of the future to be, and it's just a tiny little spaceship with all these containers attached to the back of it. And that's kind of what these 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 freighters look like today. Yeah. And they do lose some containers that fall over the side during transit. You know, some, yeah, I've seen you know, seen those videos. There's lots yeah. of stories about that in the Pacific, all washing up in like Seattle. So my other my other thought is instead of ransoming, ransomwareing the data, I wonder if they could scramble it. Like if you send the ship to the wrong place, that's gonna cost you an utter fortune. Or change their cargo so that when they get there the cargo manifests are wrong and you don't know which container they've got to go in and manually check each container. Oh yes, just poison the data rather uh, than ransomware it. And they, they wouldn't necessarily that'd be harder to like if you like if you've got a good backup and they're able to restore the backup, then Although apparently, as we've talked about before, that's harder than it seems, but just like quietly poisoning and not telling you where the correct stuff is. Oh, that's actually, I guess going back to back genius. Well, it's only genius if you don't tell them, because the problem is, is if you tell them, then they can back it up. They can go back to the backups again. Hmm. Hmm. Well, hmm. it's the same situation with, with ransomware though. You yeah. Know, if they can restore from backup where ransomware they could restore from for i guess i guess it's a little it would be a little bit easier though because what we're talking about is is simple databases in an yeah. entire systems uh, well what so you'd have to do the complexity a little bit what you'd have to do is you'd have to poison it long enough you'd have to be in there for like a couple months and poison it over a long enough time period they couldn't just restore to backup well so. that but that's a that's a problem though because it doesn't take a ship generally that long to transit yeah. the ocean so yeah. your your window is narrow in mm -hmm. that case. Unless you did it, unless you just did it for like one ship and then they were like, whoa, what happened here? And then you send them the note saying, I have poisoned 32 ships worth of data or something. You don't know which 32. Oh, right. Because if they did it properly, looking at the manifest, you wouldn't know that it's scrambled, right? Uh, so the ransom is to tell you which ships have been scrambled so that you can unransomware, unless you're going to do a diff on all of them, I suppose, between the backup and the current yeah. one or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it, but it just, just occurred to me. So, <laughs> Well, you got you to think about these kind of things, though, when you're talking about... Threat modeling? Threat modeling, exactly. Yeah. Uh, for whatever that is for your organization, these kind of possible risks that could happen. I, I once interviewed for a job at a, for a, uh, at a grocery store and the CIO was like, you know, we are just a grocery store. Why should we even care about data security? And I brought up, you know, well, what if you are unable to ship merchandise to your store and your shelves are empty because your, your stick software is messed up by an attacker? You know, I think that would be kind of important. Mm -hmm. So every organization has different threat models. And what you just talked about is something that 
you know, I had not considered before, which what makes total sense and probably is going would impact multiple different companies. Yeah. That are involved in, in logistics and shipping, including trucking and everything else. Yeah. I mean, because you sell a, you know, you send a truckload of sneakers to Whole Foods, you know, it's not really helpful for them. But this is reminiscent of what happened to Maersk in 2017 with the NotPetya. You know, they were entirely crippled by that. And there's a really long article from Wired that goes into the backstory for for how Mirsk handled the NotPetya thing. And it's pretty interesting in there, especially about the shenanigans about how they got their their lone active directory domain controller out of Africa to do the do the recovery efforts. And why this matters is Trunks's fall 22 threat report. They explained that the U.S. Uh, in the U.S.'s ransomware attacks alone against the shipping and transport sector had doubled from the second to third quarter. So you can expect that stuff to be on the rise for all sorts of businesses involved in the transporting of goods. When they talk about supply chains, this is actual physical supply chain problems that this could lead to. Yep. So what should you do about it? Well, does your threat modeling include how to continue business when an IT adjacent slash third-party systems are ransomware? Because this was a third-party company that was hit and uh, impacted 70 customers. And what types of due diligence are you doing with these third-party systems? This has definitely been a big kind of focus point in the last year or so. Well, a couple of years since, since solar winds. And make sure you plan for having to be, for that system to be disconnected from yours and being able to operate while that, that, that those systems are disconnected. All right. Item number two for today, tackling the new cyber insurance requirements. Can your organization comply? This is another cyber insurance article. And honestly, it's a pretty simple article. There's a lot of words in here, but there's not that much content. <laughs> no, they got paid, paid by the words. Paid by the Act word. Actually, yep. in at the very end of the article, they do reference you can get a free is it risk assessment or something like that. So I think this article, even though they didn't say it in there, I couldn't find anything on the page which referenced uh, that this was a sponsored article or something. But it kind of seemed like someone paid for that article to be written. Yeah. I wonder if they said, Hey, I need a thousand word article on uh, cyber insurance. Maybe that's why uh, it was as wordy as you said with the, when the contents could be boiled down to something smaller. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So this is specifically about increasing requirements for cyber insurance, where the article directly blames that ransomware attacks were up 80% last year. So the requirements for cyber insurance have gone up. They linked an article that states that 2022 is the worst year for ransomware, but I thought we talked about an article the other day where there's been a decrease in payouts, although maybe they're talking about just the number of attacks. So my personal feeling here is I don't know that I would blame it on ransomware attacks being up 80%. I think the real problem is that insurance companies did not quite understand their costs. Right. And of course, not understanding their costs stems from their in the difficulty in assessing the risk that they're agreeing to be transferred to them, you know, which leads directly into that cost estimate problem. But this article seems to give an indication based on the fact that they're, they're coming up with some concrete activities that people have to do, that this might mean that the, the industry is actually starting to get a handle on what's really important. I mean, so because they, the, the security industry now, they have a good understanding about car insurance that certain demographics like teenage boys have a higher risk of tar car insurance as well as someone who speeds a lot. But they're uncertain about, you know, which cyber hygiene markers are the result of, or that will result in greater losses or prevent losses. 
And this kind of reminds me of something that I'd heard in a podcast recently about car accidents where, you know, there's, there are instances where someone does something where they're not attentive to the road and they actually, they accidentally run over and kill somebody. But that, yeah, but in some cases, that's simply the bad luck of they were doing that thing at that time because everybody and can, can relate to that at any moment when they're driving a car, their attention may be diverted from the road for a moment, whether it's changing the dial on the, on the, on the radio or yelling at the kids or whatever. But <laughs> in that moment, you don't hit someone, but there are instances where you could have been doing that thing and hit someone. And it's just for back, lack of a better term, it's just bad luck that that event, those two events coincided. So I think the same thing you're seeing in the cybersecurity realm where uh, it could just be the luck of the draw sometimes where your organization in particular gets targeted for ransomware, where they could do a credential stuffing attack or whatever on your place, just as well as the next one and ransomware you. But the luck of the draw is that you don't get it versus another one. And because those things are coincidental, it's difficult for the insurance company to say why this happened and that didn't happen and what steps prevented this from that happening when it could just be simple, your IP address, almost a random event. Yeah, there's uh, there's only so many bad guys out there. So only so many bad guys out there. All right. So the article specifically called out two new requirements. Number one, enforcing MFA across admin access. And number two, protecting privileged accounts, specifically service accounts. So one of the things we've discussed in the past is that we think the insurance industry will be well-placed to see commonalities between incidents and then convey that information down to the company and force them to secure the most important things. So my first question is, is this the first real dividend there? Do, we, do, do you think that this is because of the types of attacks they've seen in the past? Yeah, I think so. I think this is, like I said, this is where the insurance companies are finally starting to get a handle on what's really important and starting to drive this change. Hopefully. I mean, we, we do know that uh, credential stealing and credential stuffing is consistently in the top methodology. So that makes a lot of sense. I'm sad that we had to have the insurance companies come in and tell us this, but. Well, I mean, from our long conversations on insurance, Matt, we kind of expected it too, though. You and yeah. I did anyway. Yeah. So the first part, here's a quote. They are requiring now, actually. So one thing they didn't mention in this article is which insurers. I can't imagine this is all insurers. Maybe it's a majority. They And even if it is all insurers, they probably don't have exactly the same requirements. The article did not describe who specifically is requiring this. Yeah, but, they mentioned yeah. an underwriter. So I think it's one of the major underwriters. And then since they all buy from the same underwriters, it's going to trickle down? I think so. That makes sense. So, quote, requiring MFA on all cloud-based email, remote network access, all administrative access. So I like, like Dave was talking about, I think it seems like a really good flipping idea. Like I said before, credential stuffing, and this is consistently a top methodology. Requiring two-factor auth on email will prevent a lot of the business email compromise tactics that we're seeing, although it doesn't prevent, of course, the, what do they call it? The fatigue problem where they just constantly send the, the, the prompts to humans, but that'll be less effective over time, I think, as people get wise to it. The article does point out that inventory is a problem. You can only put MFA on the accounts that you know about, but generally speaking for like cloud-based email and, and AD related access, those are fairly easy. The problem is when it comes to local accounts and shadow IT, but that's hard for everything. I don't know that that's specifically hard for this. 
Account management is the CIS control number five. Just like controls one and controls two, complete inventory of assets and complete inventory of software. Unfortunately, it's very rarely, very rarely complete. Yeah, and this is all really focused around operating system stuff. They don't really talk about special applications or, I mean, you don't necessarily have to talk about specific applications, but if you have applications that are critical for your, you know, what people would call the crown jewels or whatever. Like your ship manager software? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the admin accounts for those types of applications, that's not really discussed here. And, and when you're talking about application admin accounts, what does that mean though? When you have role-based access to an application or the application can allow for custom roles, what privileges account or a quantitate to or equivalent or what privileges are the equivalent of admin access? What do you consider admin? Creating users, changing the configuration? And how do you track that when you're talking about specific actions? Because you're going to have an account, which for the most part is just a regular account, but they get the additional privilege added to their account to create users. That make it an admin account, but they can't change the configuration. So that's other things to consider outside of simple operating system admin access. Hmm. Second, requiring organizations to maintain a list of all their service accounts. Here's another quote. To qualify for the policy, organizations need to be able to document all service account activities, including source and destination machines, privilege level, and the applications or processes they support, end quote. That would be awesome. I would love this. But, but this is impossible. <laughs> this is going to be almost impossible. They point out that service accounts frequently have high levels of access and are unmonitored. And ideally, ideally, if you had all of that documented and you had the timing documented, you are able to create a rule in your SIM that detects, you know, uh, the service account is always expected to come from here, go to there. It should log in once an hour or whatever the rule. And then whenever it varies, you know, it logs in at a weird time. It logs in from a weird place. Then you can alert off it. Practically, that's impossible. There's hundreds or thousands or maybe even more than that, depending on the size of your enterprise service accounts. Like documenting them is going to be impossible. Writing a separate rule for all of them is impossible. So there, there is a partial solution here. Machine learning and UBA could come in and notice these weirdnesses, assuming that the service counts are you know very regular. Although I haven't seen that as a specific detection in UBA, actually, weirdly enough. Well, UBA is mostly around users and not systems. You're right. So maybe, maybe, maybe what I should say here is this is where machine learning could come in. This actually seems like a great use case for machine learning. You've got a bunch of accounts that are supposed to act in a set way every time. And if they act weird, then you should I, alert on it. And actually there are, there are products that are focused around OT and IOT that mm -hmm. do this kind of thing for those systems, which are very constant and regulated. So right. maybe you could expand that kind of software into being leveraging that for the rest of your enterprise as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that I'm thinking out in particular is called Order D, uh, wait, O-R-D-R, -R, that does that kind of pattern recognition for data transmission between IoT devices. Mm -hmm. uh, but what, one thing they don't mention in the article is that a lot of service accounts have their passwords set to not expire. And while that's something that people are getting away from, you have to consider today that those are probably created with really poor passwords like the regular users are. <laughs> like what did we see the other week? We saw some ones that had to be service accounts for that government. Like the, right. uh, was it, it was like the, the football team or something. Yeah. Because they mentioned 
That, in thinking about that that article, is they mentioned accounts. They didn't actually specify that whether some of those accounts were service accounts or not. Yeah. And they're also subject to password reuse. If you have the same individual key and service accounts, they may use the same password for all the service accounts too. So that's another challenge with service accounts. But this is something that the operating system vendors need to fix. I mean, forever, we've been creating user accounts and calling them service accounts. But machine accounts and application, machines and applications are not users. So they should not be using accounts that are user accounts. There should be something that's actually called or designated a service account. And maybe there's more than one type of account that's a service account. You know, one for transmissions between systems and one for software development or maybe software development is probably a bad example, but there are different service accounts are used for different functions today. And you could probably categorize those into a handful. And if operating systems actually had a designated method or entity that was a service account rather than simply taking a user account and calling a service account, that could greatly improve things. Actually, one of the things I was thinking about when I was looking over this is how do you tell a service account apart from a normal user account? I know some places do naming conventions. Is it specifically called out? I mean, an AD or in a local account somewhere that it's a service versus a user account? No, people, they do it two ways, naming and the description on the account. The description on the account. That's all I've ever seen because the operating systems don't designate something as a specific service account. Because if you had a designated entity that was a service account, you could do all sorts of things with it, including all this tracking that you're talking about around that service account. You could prevent users from actually being able to authenticate using that service account because it isn't accepted at any user authentication point. You can't use it. You can't even use a password on it or something like that. We need to start thinking differently, or the operating system vendors need to start thinking differently about service accounts. And once they start doing this, then their application vendors can get on board too in the way that the applications need or leverage service accounts could be different. And they could start writing their applications to coincide with that. I've always wanted to see application vendors that need a service account in order to integrate with the environment or with their, whatever their product is doing to have an integration with a password vaulting solution. So the password vault could manage the service account password within the application. I've never seen it and I doubt I ever will, but it's something I always ask software or I always ask vendors about. Gotcha. Yeah, I was just thinking myself that uh, frequently service accounts almost always seem to need admin rights to everything. And, or even when it doesn't need admin rights and you give it limited rights, something fails. And you frequently, the 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 call from support, other, you know, the second most common request from support other than open up the firewall is give it admin rights and see if it works. Yeah, well, what I've heard a lot is give it domain admin. Oof. Yeah. Which is terrible. And a lot of people have started getting away from that more and more, but that used to be a big thing in the past where they want a domain admin when they really, they're not administering the domain. They don't actually need domain admin. What they, what they want is enterprise system or enterprise workstation access or something like that is what they really want. But it's also easier just to create a domain admin that has that kind of access by default rather than have to go in and set all the permissions. Yeah. It's too hard. It's it takes too minutes. Hard. Yeah. And frankly, naming, at least with the naming convention, having a consistent service count naming convention makes it a lot easier to monitor for that type of stuff in the SIM. 
You could look for like RDP logins for accounts that have a service, like an SVC prefix or something like that. So you could do some alerting content off that if the naming convention's there. That'd be harder to do if it was a setting kind of behind the scenes. Right. You could also do some auditing in your AD environment with that criteria as well, because then you could see what groups the service accounts are in and things of that nature and the access that those groups have or what those groups have access to. So finally, they mentioned that to find these, you need to perform a thorough assessment. They do suggest focusing on authentications, which makes a lot of sense if you have your auth logs from both Active Directory and local systems in there. You should be able to look at all of the logins, put them into some big charts and export them from your SIM. This will help you find a lot of those shadow accounts those local accounts. Point out as well that an assessment will help find other issues to improve your posture. This makes more sense with what David was talking about, where somebody probably paid them to try to funnel assessments to them. And that explains why their their helpful information is so limited at the end. Pay us. We'll help you. Yeah, it's what makes the world go round. Apparently. So why does this matter? Well, the, I feel like the article is mildly helpful in pointing out that there's some new requirements coming down the line. Although, frankly, if you have a cyber insurance policy, you probably already knew about it because your insurer should hopefully have already told you about it. And I do, I do, I did want to talk about it for the interesting fact that these are the two most critical things they're focusing on this year. I wonder if we're going to see like two things a year too, because they, they, maybe they understand that trying to get everybody to do everything is too much. And they're going to pick out like, what are the top things this year? What are the next two things next year? Mm, I think this is going to be running for a few years. Yeah, it's going to take a while. They may start, you know, after they get this nailed down, maybe they'll start moving on to other things. But I think what you're going to see is they're going to, they're going to say, well, you have to do this this year. And hopefully they're going to start taking lessons learned for how this is done. And then start propagating that to companies, educating them or helping them Mm -hmm. execute on this problem. And then once you know, this seems to be a well-oiled machine or most places are actually implementing this, then they'll, they'll move on to the next, mo- next most important activity or, or things that that organization need to do, like patching or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you should do about it? At the very least, at the very least, please, please put together a naming convention for service accounts and start documenting these new accounts. <laughs> at the very least. Yeah, and while you have a naming convention for service accounts, you should also have the same for your admin accounts because your admin accounts should be separate and you're not have your administrators using their regular accounts, just give, granting those admin privileges. So I, you're right, but I, I hate the admin accounts being separate so much. Yeah, it's it's annoying. I don't I don't I don't disagree with that. But if you have to RDP to do your admin work anyway, it's not that big a deal, really. Yeah, if you have to do it in a separate, I'm just, when you have to do it on your own machine, it's, you have to like spin up an incognito window and it's annoying. Yeah. Wine, well, wine, 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 Best practice, Matt. Yeah, yeah. And of course, if you have a PIM, try to do, manage as many accounts, both service accounts and admin accounts as you can within the PIM. That makes sense. All right. And the third article is, have we learned nothing from the SolarWinds supply chain attacks? Not yet, it appears. And this snarky headline comes to us from the register, of course. So the hack of SolarWinds is over two years old now. And that attack has got a lot of people start talking about supply chains. But have, how much progress has actually been made on defending supply chains since the SolarWinds attack has happened? And so Gartner expects that by 2025, so that's just two years away, 45% of glo- organizations globally will have experienced software supply chains attacks, which would be a threefold increase from just 2021. 
And the thing about supply chains is taxes, that's really a, like a, a, a hacker force multiplier. Because once you compromise one supplier, that could either lead to the compromise, co compromise of other organizations or allow for direct access into other companies if the supplier is someone like an MSSP who already has that access. And there have been some high-profile cases such as SolarWinds for code repositories like GitHub and PyPy, as well as CICD platform provider CircleCI. Never heard of that one, but I guess that's not all that special. Well, you're not agile, obviously. But something that has, has recently come out is something called Oscar, C and R, which is an acronym for Open Software Supply Chain Attack Reference. I, they had to put the and in there, I guess, to equate it or to associate with MITRE because they actually have an A in the acronym, but they used an and instead, which is weird. Well, it's, you know, cooler. It's more modern. Well, I think it's just because the to make it associate directly with with attack because attack has that in there for an obvious reason. That seems shallow though. Like most people. But this was created by a former vice president of cybersecurity at Checkpoint and other security pros from Google, Microsoft, Lab, and Fortinet. And this is a framework for evaluating and measuring the risk to supply chains. And it's the same basic concept around MITRE, as a matter of fact, has the exact same columns when you look at it as MITRE. And there'll be a link in the show notes to this framework. Interesting. Huh. That is interesting. Yeah, they got all the stuff on the side for cloud security versus artifact security versus secrets hygiene versus container security. This is interesting, actually. Yeah, so there's quite a bit there. So take a look at it. And according to Varum Badwar, the CEO of the supply chain security company Endor Labs, enterprises and agencies use an average of more than 40,000 open source open source software packages, and each of those can bring an additional 77 dependencies. So 77 times 40,000, it's at 228 million. Sure. Two, my math is terrible, but it's a lot. And they found that, and the reason that the, the dependencies uh, are important is this company, Indoor Labs, found that 95% of open source vulnerabilities are found in those dependencies. Now, not to be outdone, the supply, the supply chain security vendor ChainGuard is heading up a group to jumpstart the adoption of the Visibility Exploitable Exchange, Exploitability Exchange, VEX, which is a tool for addressing vulnerabilities in enterprise software. And the, the companies that, he, that they're partnering with are Hewlett Packard Enterprise, VMware, the Linux Foundation, and it also has the support of several government agencies, including the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, the, TA, the NTIA, as well as the DHS CISA. And they have released a product called OpenVex. And to quote the release, it says, suppliers can move more precisely described, sorry, suppliers can more precisely describe how exploitable the products are and help end users filter out false positives. So that's what it claims it does. And this chain guard is including this, this product in, in their own soft, in their own software. So they have something called Wolfie container specific distribution, which is going to contain this product as well as secure by default container based images that include that. 
Now, check marks, because this is an open standard, check marks is building onto their supply, supply chain security offering th this open VEX add on as well. And of course, DISA, I'm sorry, DHS CISA is helping by adding more bureaucracy by creating an office to address the supply, supply chain and security and work with the public and private sector to put federal policies in place. So that's going to help a whole. It sounds like a whole bunch of people being really busy, but not actually accomplishing much. Well, we'll see. Having an open standard, I think, is a good idea, though, because then it's not proprietary and other people who are smarter than these guys can look at that and say, oh, I know how to make this better and expand on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, despite the Oscar thing, trying to really copy the attack, it does look interesting. Yeah, I think that's going to be less important than OpenVex because mm -hmm. that's really, that's the framework is is nice. But OpenVex is action. You know, you can actually leverage this to do this kind of stuff now, help prevent this now, as opposed to the framework, which just helps you describe and look for it. But because no organization does anything themselves, everyone is at risk from supply chain compromises. And it's virtually impossible to prevent these things because you have to, because your organization has to trust that third party that they're not going to have a compromise that sub subsequently leads back into your organization or causes your organization to be compromised. Uh, so take a look at the framework and the OpenVex tool and see if those things can be leveraged in your environment. And of course, have a third party risk team that's dedicated to thinking about and addressing the supply chain risk that your organization has. And they should, and as part of that, they should have a process in place to prevent people in your organization from going around that third party risk team. Because if a third party risk team doesn't know about it, they can't help manage or mitigate the risk that that third party causes. All right. For our fourth one, attackers abuse Microsoft's verified publisher status to steal data. Again, from the register. We have a lot of stuff from the register today. That's three of four, actually. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Well, the register is awesome. So <laughs> makes total sense. I guess that's fair. So attackers use malicious OAuth applications to abuse Microsoft's verified publisher status, allowing them to gain access to organizations' cloud environments to steal data and view users' mailboxes, calendars, and meetings. God, I wish they would take some meetings for me. <laughs> uh, I wish they would compromise my calendar and empty it. I mean, I guess I could do that myself uh, and then blame it on. Yeah, call the IR team and say, I think I've been hacked. My calendar's empty. So this was discovered by Proofpoint back in early December. The attacker needs to get Microsoft to call them a verified publisher. But then they are they trick the organization into granting their requests to their third-party OAuth to gain access to the user's accounts. So here's a quote. After gaining a verified publisher ID, threat actors added links in each app to the terms of service and policy statement that point to the impersonated organization's website. Presumably this added credibility because the two links are displayed in the app consent form. That's a little different. Normally they, you know, try and do this as part of a, you know, to view this invoice, you must click approve. Right. I thought that was a pretty slick idea because... What you expect attackers to do is double down on the attack by mm -hmm. having malicious links or attachments in there rather than leveraging the links or attachments in order to add validity to the first attack, kind of emphasizing the first attack. I think that's a really slick concept that you yeah. don't see too often. 
Interesting. So two of the two of them were named single sign-on, and the third was named meeting. These are the so these malicious verified publishers have also impersonated popular applications. Hmm. Interesting. Oh well, yeah. So Microsoft said that the attackers impersonated legitimate companies. One case was apparently Zoom. They were enrolled in Microsoft's cloud partner program and then used fraudulent partner accounts to add that verified publisher. They then created a consent phishing campaign, and then that's where they tricked the users into clicking and granting permissions to the apps. To And according to Microsoft, they're working in order to attempt to reduce the likelihood of this happening by implementing other security measures, which they didn't specify. Never um, do. That's proprietary. People. <laughs> Top. Updating its partner vetting process, providing documentation to reduce the risk of future consent to phishing, consent phishing attacks, and finally investigating to see what other steps should be taken. Which I mean, are course, all proprietary. Yeah, it's being done by top men. We just <laughs> went over that. But this is, of course, important because the cloud brings an entirely new set of risks that weren't even present on-prem. So organizations and attackers are discovering new ones all the time, even though, you know, this, this OAuth attacks are about as old as the protocol. Not a matter of simply moving the on-prem risks to the cloud. It's a whole new set of risks once you move there. And the best you can do to attempt to mitigate at least the OAuth one is restrict access to OAuth so it must be approved before the user can add an application. Basically add a second set of eyes to that in order to verify that they're adding something that's legit. You can also flag OAuth applications that appear to behave suspiciously, which then Microsoft will review and possibly then block those apps. And finally, audit, the last refuge of a scoundrel. So review audit permissions and app permissions regularly to ensure they haven't gotten out of control. Well, that looks like that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Psych on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 